This is Lights, Camera, Author. I'm Jim Juno, and this is where authors talk about movies, television, and everything in between. And you can find Lights, Camera, Author on Google and Apple Podcasts, as well as Spotify and Public Radio Exchange. Lee Goldberg is a two-time Edgar Award and two-time Seamus Award nominee and the number one New York Times bestselling author of more than 30 novels. He's also written or produced many TV shows, including Diagnosis Murder, Sequest, and Monk, and is a co-creator of the Mystery 101 series for the Hallmark Network movies. His new book, which came out on January 5th, is called Bone Canyon. Lee Goldberg, welcome to Lights, Camera, Author. It's great to be here. I've been dreaming of this moment since I was a child. Yes. (laughs) I tell you what, you may have 30 number one best-selling novels, but this is going to make your career. This this is the one thing that was unattainable. (laughs) Finally. I wanted to be on Carson, but that SOB died on me, and (laughs) that just left you. I tell you what, it was like, it was like, yeah, thank, thank uh, Megan for this when you see her, you know, so. For all of you out there, that, that's the name of my publicist. Yes, indeed. And, I, and Bone Canyon is the next, well, I want to say the next book in the series, but it's actually the second book, which follows up on Lost Hills with, uh, with uh, L.A. County, Sheriff Deputy, let me get this right, Eve Ronan, is that how, how you pronounce her name? That is correct. And she's nursing a broken wrist at the beginning of this one, which I guess she suffered at the end of the last one. She or did. She, she and, did. I'm, I'm a big believer in consistency and people uh, not healing overnight from their wounds that they've suffered in previous episodes. I mean, I love it in TV shows. You know, A character will get shot and will be in the ICU, barely surviving. Next episode, they're jumping out of airplanes, having sex with three different people, and uh, doing judo. Just like real life. Yeah. Hey, you know. <laughs> I mean, how many times did Mike Connors get shot in the arm during, uh, oh, during Manic? And Peggy would wrap him up in like in a handkerchief, and like the next day, he's driving off on his uh, whatever car he drove. I thought it was exactly. A, you know, so Peggy was his secretary. For those of you out there who remember the Mannix TV show, and um, now you, I want to talk a little bit about Bone Canyon, but I also want to talk about your time, you know, on di- with Diagnosis Murder and Monk and all the all those great TV shows. So, but first off, now you attended extensive training. For this, for this book, didn't you? Well, it wasn't so much training as it was research. I attended uh, several homicide investigator training conferences, the only civilian at the, at the conferences, as research for, for the books. I was lucky enough to have a friend who was putting those conferences on. These are uh, things that homicide detectives have to attend 24 hours uh, each year, I think, to stay up to date on the latest techniques and things. And uh, it was great research. I learned quite a bit from those experiences. I tell you what, and and now in the beginning of Bone Canyon, uh, Eve Ronan and her partner, I guess you want to call her her partner, Paul Bishop, who doesn't think she should go out on this because she's still a woman and nursing her wrist. However, she's she's you know bound and determined to get out there to say uh, her her partner is not Paul Bishop. Her partner's Paul, name is Duncan Pavone. Duncan Jonas Pavone. Paul Bishop right. is a retired homicide detective and a dear friend of mine who's given me quite a bit of advice on the on the book. 
That's right. I'm looking at my wrong notes here. I've got a whole bunch of notes written out in front of me. But yeah, Duncan is her is her uh, partner, and he's he's kind of like an old fashioned old old uh, like you said, Dunkin' Donuts. I mean, coffee and donut eating cop, isn't he? He is uh, at first blush the old cliche, the fat, slovenly donut eating cop who's on his way out the door, the the detective trope. And I did that on purpose because I want to announce to the people reading my books that I am sick and tired of all those police procedural cliches and tropes, and that I intend in the Eve Ronan book to subvert every single one of them. And he's sort of my, my signpost, my declaration, my, my flag in the, in the sand that uh, I'm not going to do the same old, same old. Now, I'm going, only going to give away some of the first chapter. I'm not going to give away the whole book for everybody out there. Uh, she, they, find a, they find a skull, or a screenwriter, rather, finds a skull in, in his yard. And it has, you know, and that's, that's how it begins. But this was, uh, this was actually had its genesis in the uh, Woolsey fire, Woolsey fire, if I get that pronouncing straight, that recently happened out in Southern California. Yeah, I live in Calabasas. And when I wrote Lost Hills, I ended that book with a giant wildfire sweeping through the Santa, Santa Monica Mountains. It was fictional. But by the time my book was in galleys, the final formatting before the book was printed, there was a real wildfire in, in the Santa Monica Mountains. And I live in Calabasas. And there were flames licking my back fence. So I got evacuated to my sister's house and uh, out in Valencia. And I was editing my galleys at the same time when I was writing was appearing on television. I got it right. But I mean, it's a weird experience of, of fiction and fact colliding. So the second book picks up only a short time after that fire. And in real life, the fire denuded all the mountains here in, in Calabasas, Agura Hills, Santa Monica, Malibu. They're just black, denuded all of the, 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 the brush and the trees. And in doing so, revealed a lot of hidden secrets, crashed cars, airplane wreckage, bodies. And I'm not talking about people killed in the fire. I'm talking about people whose bodies had been dumped or people who had died in the canyons and their, their bodies hadn't been discovered in all these years until the fire cleared out all the brush and, and exposed the bones. That's amazing. Yeah. And, and it reminded me a little bit of the, uh, well, I want to say the Black Hills fire from many years ago when they were finally able to get on the little bighorn uh, graveyard to, uh, to retrieve bodies and, and evidence of the Custer, the Custer battle, Custer last stand. But um, let me ask you this. I mean, now you also, but you, you'd go out and you actually do a lot of research in this. You, I mean, you, like you said, met with Paul Bishop and with Dep and David Putnam, uh, Robin Bursell. I mean, these are all people who are well-known out, I mean, I want to say out in the California area, but these are, these are a top of the top of the line uh, research. You, you spare no expense, do you? Well, there's no expense involved. <laughs> Paul, Bishop, Paul Bishop, I have known since I was 19 years old. And I've known Robin uh, Brussel probably as long. David Putnam, I've known for probably 10 years. I've blurbed his books. And I mean, we're all old friends. In fact, I have a small publishing company. And uh, Robin Brussel wrote a book for us based on the TV series Streets of San Francisco. It's a long story, but I own the underlying rights to that, that series, which was based on some books that... Um, Carolyn Weston published, uh, yeah. wrote. But anyway, long story, I won't get into it. But no, these are old friends of mine. And I've, I've been relying on, on Paul Bishop going back to when I wrote my first novel, or had my first novel published when I was 19. 
he was a consultant on diagnosis murder. He wrote three or four episodes of diagnosis murder for me. So he and I have been uh, right helping each other and friends for a long, long time. Uh, The only money involved is the occasional drink at BoucherCon or a lunch or something. (laughs) Oh, drinking. Wait a minute. Well, you don't, you know, police don't drink, do they? <laughs> I am a heavy, heavy Diet Coke drinker. Okay. Okay. <laughs> In fact, as I'm talking to you now, I am guzzling down Diet Coke just to, <laughs> just to stay so alive. No, or stay awake with me questioning you, right? It's like, <laughs> I tell you what, it's um, Bone Canyon, though, is just, it's a fun read. And I just, I was wondering, you know, do you have another one coming out after this one? I do. The, the third Eve Ronan adventure, Gated Prey. Oh, God, my voice cracked there. Gated Prey <laughs> is coming out in October. It's already finished. And uh, I'm hoping they'll ask me soon to do a fourth one. I think everyone listening right now should write three letters to my publisher demanding, demanding a fourth book. <laughs> I tell you what, I tell you what, this is fun. I'm, I'm going to have some fun with this now. I want to talk about some, this is like the camera author. So we always have to go back to the TV and movies and stuff like that, because, you know, we don't normally do works of fiction, but I told Megan, I said, I want to talk to this guy because you, I want to say, I don't want to say worked on you are actually the driving force behind two of the shows that I used to love to watch uh, diagnosis, murder and monk. And on, on Diagnosis Murder, I was indeed the driving force. I was the executive producer and, mm-hmm. and wrote, I don't know, 30 some episodes myself, but had a hand in writing, you know, over 100 episodes of that show. On Monk, the driving force was Andy Breckman, creator and executive producer of the show. I was just fortunate enough to write four episodes of Monk and 15 original Monk novels. Right, or 15 novels. But let me ask you, how different is it writing for TV as opposed to writing a novel? Wholly different entirely different forms of writing. When you write a script, you're essentially writing a blueprint for other contractors and workers to do their job with. I mean, it's the document that directors look at, actors look at, location managers, wardrobe people to find out what they're going to do, what sets they're going to build, how they're going to perform. It's a working document. It's it's used to create a budget and a shooting schedule. Yes, it tells a story and there's dialogue, but it's also very much the document they use to build the production. And the story is told entirely through action and dialogue. If you don't hear it and you don't see it, it doesn't exist. And there's a a clear structure to a script, an act structure. Whereas in a book, you're writing everything. I mean, you are the director, you are the wardrobe person, you are the location person, and you can tell stories in, in a myriad of ways. I can write a script in a few days. It takes me about five months to write a novel. Uh, part of that is research, you know, before you even get to writing it, it's a whole bunch of research going involved. Well, for both. If I, if I write a, a script and it's a, a mystery and it involves, I don't know, the uh, printed currency collecting or, or waste management or whatever, I'm still doing research. The research is the same whether I'm writing a book or writing a script. It's how I tell the story. That said, I have tried to bring a lot of those television writing techniques to the way I write the Eve Ronan novels. I've taken a new approach to my writing in writing the Eve Ronan books. I've removed my authorial voice. I want the writing to completely disappear. I don't want you to be aware of the writing. I try not to write anything clever or, or, or memorable in, in the prose. I, I don't want you suddenly remembering that you're reading. So I want the, you to get so caught up in the story that the writing disappears. So I try to move the Eve Ronan stories forward the same way as a script through action and dialogue. So you're 
visualizing it, almost like watching a TV show. And if I'm going to say anything clever, I put it in the mouth of one of my characters. And if I can't do that, I don't say it. That's very different from the other books I've written where I have a strong author voice. In this one, it's, in these two, it's really just the facts, ma'am. I was going to ask you that a lot of authors put themselves or model a character after themselves. Do you have, are any of your characters in your books after yourself? Oh, I think all the characters are me. It's impossible for them not to be me. They all come out of my head. Um, with the good ones, the bad ones, the slovenly ones, particularly the slovenly ones, but also the powerfully <laughs> sexy, self-assured ones too. I mean, they all are aspects of me. They have to be, or aspects of my experience. Let me ask you this. But the most direct, yeah. I mean, you give me backward answer to that. Yeah. The most direct uh, approach to that I've taken is I wrote uh, three books, True Fiction, Killer Thriller, and Fake Truth, uh, about an author named Ian Ludlow, whose fictional worlds tend to come true. Um, and he's put in the situations of the action heroes he writes about. He's essentially me. In fact, Ian Ludlow was the pseudonym I used to write my first four novels when I was uh, in my early, late teens, early 20s. Oh, really? Is that, I didn't know about that. Is that a, it, now, how'd you come up with the name Ian Ludlow? Oh, for Ian Fleming and Robert Ludlum. At the time, oh. Robert Ludlum was the best-selling author in America, so my books would be right on the shelf next to his. And I figured people would go, Ian Ludlow. You know, I think I read something by him once. It wasn't bad. And you know, his <laughs> books tend to have a hammer and sickle on the cover or a Brandenburg Gate or something. I had boobs and explosions and big guns. <laughs> and the, the books I wrote were called 357 Vigilante by Ian Ludlow, and they were just sleazy men's action adventure novels but they sold great new world pictures bought the movie rights hired me to write the script and both my literary and television careers were born at the same time and this is when i was 19 20 years old i was still in college well let me let me turn to diagnosis murder for for a few minutes here because i want to know was it hard getting coaxing dick van dyke to play that part i know his son also uh, played in that show I didn't create the series. It was created by uh, Joyce Burdett. And initially, um, Fred Silverman and Dean Hargrove were the executive producers for the first season. And they were the ones who, who got Dick Van Dyke involved. I had nothing to do with, with that. Um, I kept the show on the air. <laughs> so basically, the show was not doing well. And, and me and my then writing partner, William Rabkin, came in. And the two of us revamped the whole show. And it moved to the top 20 and stayed there the whole time that Bill and I were running the show. And as soon as we left, the ratings went right back in the toilet again, but it was, it was, it was great fun. Um, it was a, a, a joy to write. He was a pleasure to work with. Um, those were some of the happiest days of my professional career. Not that my career is over. I'm still writing for TV, but, um, and film, but, um, that, that was just so much fun doing that series. Out of all the, all the shows that you've worked on, uh, we're talking Sequest. Uh, I'm looking at your, uh, looking at your, uh, IMDB page, uh, Cosby mysteries. Um, do you have a favorite? I would say Diagnosis, Murder, or Monk. Uh, you know, Monk, I wasn't producing it. I was just writing it. But I loved writing that character. Diagnosis, Murder, uh, me and my then part writing partner, William Rabkin, we were in charge of everything. It was our show for better or worse. And so that was a wonderful experience. Probably the low point of my career was writing for Baywatch and the new adventures <laughs> of Flipper. But other than that, uh, is it hard writing for a dolphin? Come oh, on. it's hell, especially when the dolphin talks. <laughs> I can imagine it's not quite on the same level as, as Monk surmising a case at the end of the show like he always did. I can't be too embarrassed about the talking dolphin. I mean, 
that show was executive produced by Steven Spielberg. So he carries the same shame that I do. <laughs> he turned out all right. You know, and um, I was just, I'm just wondering though, how, well, how different do you approach, is the approach to a show like that? What do you uh, mean? I mean, like the, you approach, you approach the mystery. I mean, one I'm sobbing while I write and one I'm not. <laughs> no, one I, I have a gun in my mouth the whole time, the other one I'm <laughs> drinking Diet Coke. So I can't say that writing for Talking Dolphin was that much different than writing for David Hasselhoff. But <laughs> I tell you what, we're going to get in trouble here. Okay. <laughs> I love it. Um, let me, I just want to know how. Um, At least how, the dolphin didn't drink, at least not alcohol. <laughs> Yes, that's right. Well, he was did have did have liquids, but not alcohol. Now, um, no, but but writing for a mystery, especially like with diagnosis murder, and like you said, to a lesser extent, the uh, a number of episodes, Monk. You got to be really careful not to make a mistake throughout the. I mean, throughout the entire script. Because... No, I make all kinds of mistakes. Oh, it's okay. fiction. It's fiction. Um, some of the mistakes are the best part. I mean, we're not telling true stories. We're telling stories meant to entertain, to compel, to excite, to help you escape. They're, they're, they're not accurate. I mean, there's nothing about Monk that's real. <laughs> there's nothing about <laughs> Monk that's remotely believable. I mean, diagnosis murder. There's this doctor of internal medicine shows up at crime scenes and asks people questions and these idiots answer them. They don't say, why should I answer you? You're a damn doctor. I'll come to you when I need a hip replacement. I'm not going to talk to you about a murder. Go f yourself. You know, okay. My language. It's okay. We'll believe it. It's just, that's absurd. Did you ever? It's absolutely absurd. When a doctor shows up at a crime scene. They go, oh, doctor, glad to see you. Like, no, they wouldn't. They'd say, get the hell out of here. My son's a detective. I don't care if your son's Mahatma Gandhi. Get out of my crime scene. So when they came and pitched the show to you, you said, okay. No, they didn't pitch the show. The show existed. They said, how would you like this bucket of money to write the show? And I said, no, get your bucket of money away from me. I'm not going to write this. Of course I'd. I was glad to write it. You, you accept you accept the suspension of disbelief. You create a world where it's possible for a doctor of internal medicine to be at every crime scene in Los Angeles, where people who are accused of murder will gladly answer this doctor's questions. You create your own universe. And if you create that universe well, the audience will ride with you. But if you violate the rules of the universe you've created, they will hate you. And that's, that's known as jumping the shark. It's when you violate the rules of your own universe. When you do something that's completely outside the contract that you sign with the with the viewer or the reader, so you 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 set out in the first few episodes, whatever show you're doing, whether it's Monk or Baywatch or Diagnosis Murder, <laughs> here is my world. Here are the rules of how this world works. You either accept it or you don't. If you accept it, come on in, enjoy the ride. But then you have a, a commitment to the viewer or the reader to stick with it and and not violate the rules that you created. Do you have that same commit, uh, same commitment to the rules in a novel such as The Bone Canyon? Yeah, absolutely. Every every time you create a franchise, um, well, not even a franchise, when you write a book, you are starting from day one. You are creating your own planet, your own culture, your your own world, and you're saying this is how my world works. In the world of Monk, there are no forensics, there are no chain of evidence rules. This is how it's done. Um, you know, in in the world of Perry Mason. For no reason at all, guilty people will confess in the witness stand in the last minute. You know, it's, they, they even do it on in reality shows. In um, uh, Love It or List It, 
The guy is always going to show the clients two houses that suck. And the third house is going to be the house they love. It's always the same. I mean, it, it's, there's a formula you create. People find comfort in that formula because ultimately they want the same thing all the time, only different. You mean to tell me there's no Dale the whale that was in Monk? <laughs> it's that when the jump the shark came from uh, an episode of Happy, Happy, Happy Days, Days, right? Where Fonzie was water skiing and jumped over a shark. It was absurd. It would have fit in Gilligan's Island, but it did not fit the rules of Happy Days. They violated their own universe. Right. They jumped the shark. So any show can jump the shark. Any, any series of books can jump the shark. It could be a tonal change, a character doing something that's totally unbelievable, or suddenly bringing the world of forensics and uh, chain of evidence into a monk novel. It, it's, it's the level of reality that you, or type of reality you want to bring into your world. Uh, it's a delicate balance. And it, and, but you've walked the line fantastically. I mean, you've got, you know, you don't, you don't jump the, you haven't jumped the shark yet. So congratulations on that. But sometimes it's a pain in the ass because you come into a show and if a show is in trouble, you want to fix it and fixing it may mean a reset of what that universe is. And sometimes you can get away with it. There, there are shows that have, you know, had new showrunners come in and do a, a tonal and visual reset of the show and it's clicked. And other times it just comes across as last minute desperation and the show gets canceled. And I've been guilty of that. Um, I came into a show called Martial Law that was not doing well, radically changed the concept and the audience said, no, thank you, check please. So that happens. Well, Lee, it's been great talking to you. Uh, well, our time is all up and I didn't even realize we've been talking this long, but I really appreciate you being on, on the show tonight. My pleasure. A dream come true, as I said. <laughs> I can quit writing now. <laughs> Don't do that, please. Uh, we can, well, you can order Lee Goldberg's book, Bone Canyon, from Amazon.com. And you can find more information about Lee and his work at www.leegoldberg.com. Until next time, this has been Lights, Camera, Author, and I'm Jim Juno. Well, Saturday night. I know where I'm gonna go I'm gonna pick my baby up And take her to the picture show 